Amen, and thank you. It's a great pleasure for me to be back with you, and I'm glad for the opportunity to, with you, open God's Word and to search it and to uh, receive the blessing that we always get when we do these things in faith. And he's true to his promise, has been in the past, and surely, because he lives, because the grave is empty, because the hope, our hope in a blessed future is secure, he will do that again today. And so I would invite you to turn with me then to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 61. It'll be page 739, I guess, in your few Bibles. Jesus, in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, got in a lot of trouble when he quoted this passage. Uh, they, this was in Nazareth when he preached there, and they didn't like, they loved the words because these are greatly encouraging words, but they didn't like his application and didn't like it to the point that they tried to seize him and throw him off a cliff. They were really upset because it was an audacious claim when he quoted this in their midst and then made some outrageous claims about it. So we're going to see a little bit about that. And uh, before we read, I would ask you to bow with me in prayer. Lord God, we do an old, old thing here, a thing that we're most likely very, very familiar with. We open the old book, and we look at it, and we read it, and we hear some words about it, and then we close it, and we go home, and too often, Lord, much remains, most remains the same. But we pray this morning again for your special anointing. Would you be here with us? Enliven our hearts, our minds, our ears. Be with the preacher. Be, Lord, with all of us as we seek your way in this world of ours. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, 
They will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and every everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. And in my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes up the spring, makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteous and praise, righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. I don't do it lightly, but sometimes you just have to uh, mix politics and worship. Um, I don't know how many of you have been following the news, but if you're partisan, if you're strongly partisan, you might either be uh, wailing or chortling at the sentence handed down to Governor Blagojevich. Um, it's a hard thing to watch Illinois politics. We now have the unhappy prospect of having two governors who might well be cellmates. And wouldn't that be ironic? And wouldn't that, in a sense, if, you didn't, if it wasn't so serious, be something to take as a form of sort of low comedy? Maybe uh, watching Illinois pol politics might be something very like entertainment. But if your views aren't so seriously polarized because of ardent, almost faith-like partisanship, you see what's happened as a tragedy and a stumbling block and a hurt to people who've had a lot of hopes dashed. I heard someone call the protestations of innocence and uh, all his speeches and TV appearances and of, of Governor Blagojevich as, I've heard the term used, audacious. But I think that's a misuse of the word audacious. Audacious generally means uh, uh, brave, confident, maybe, maybe over the top, but uh, daring, brave. It, it's, a, it's a noble word in a lot of ways. I think what we've heard, rather, is something more like, um, well, brazen, or maybe even what we call stupid. But there's a bad taste. It, it, it's, it's not an easy thing, no matter where your politics lies. If you love your country, love your state, you've got little cause to be celebrating. Uh, hope, hope in what politics and government is supposed to be able to do for us and the way, reason for which God has placed it in our lives to rule us and to, to govern has been dashed. And we have grown cynical and not time and money and resources and a lot of things have been wasted. During the, 19, or the 2008 
presidential campaign, I read uh, President Obama's book called The Audacity of Hope. And in that book, he was talking about what hope is about, it, it, a good future. What, that's, what you, that's what you hope for. You, you look forward. It's about the future, hope is. It's sort of leaning forward, and it's, it's an encouraging word about the future, that good things are going to be coming. And for him, the good things were things like, well, enough for everybody. Uh, health care, the, the right of just decent, adequate health care for everybody. Uh, a, a enough for everybody. That, that, was, that was the hope. And his hope in his book, The Audacity of Hope, was based on, well, uh, things like the, the good American character. Because we are who we are, this hope is realizable. And the other thing, well, our Constitution, because of that document, that, that beautiful, far uh, visionary document that has founded our nation and our rule, our laws are gathered around, because of that and also, well, because of abundant natural resources and a lot of other things, he was saying our future is good. There's going to be enough. We're going to be able to to progress, we're going to be able to grow. It's, it's a rosy, wonderful future. Well, if you are at all um, seasoned at reading newspapers and uh, watching television newscasts, you know that such hope was uh, not only audacious, it was yet again another hope dash because no matter how noble and how wonderful we'd like to believe these things are, the brute reality is that because of sin, because of just the infirmity and the inherent selfishness that lies within the human hearts, uh, such things get dashed. If, if hope, dear friends in Christ, is built on nothing more basic, nothing more sure as a basis than the noble American character and a 200-year-old plus-year-old document that has lots of rules and, and noble visions and what we ought to be and what we could be and what we should be as a country and on a very limited bounty of natural resources, you know it's, it's, it cannot succeed. Our hopes as a nation, based with those sorts of things as our basis, are, cannot stand. They are not, use a word that we've often heard in the news, sustainable. Because they're based on power. The power of money. The power of military. The power of, of organization. The power of voting blocks, the power of, of demographics and unions and the like of that, coalitions, caucuses. When the Bible talks about hope, it is talking about much of the same stuff, our passage this morning. It's talking about justice, enough for everybody, adequate treatment for, for people, it's talking about a beautiful future. 
The difference is that it has a different basis. It's not based on something so filmy and so flimsy and so doomed to fail as the noble American character, which we all know in our heart of hearts, if we weren't constrained by a whole lot of things, we'd be out there grabbing and getting as, as much as we possibly could, just like everybody else. That's the brute facts of, of who we are as fallen creatures. We need to have a different basis than something so flimsy as a noble American character. Such basis comes to us who are people of faith and who believe from the scriptures. In, in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, there's a couple of wonderful definitions of, of, of Christian hope. God did these things so that by two unchangeable things, things that aren't flimsy and aren't going to just pass away because they're, they're just as with the, when a word is said, it's impossible for God to lie. God will keep his promises. And for those who have held on to his promises, the second thing, we may be greatly encouraged, the writer says. We have this hope as an anchor a basis that's firm and sure and good and strong, firm and secure. And in chapter 11, verse 10 of Hebrews, he says, the Abraham, was, he went and changed his place of living. He went off it just by God saying, pick up your tent and go. He went because he was looking forward. He was, he was, looking, he was anticipating a future whose foundations and architect and builder is God. So there, there's a, his, his hope was based on something, the promises of God. It, this is a long introduction, and I'm sorry about that, but it, it's important. Um, the, there's a good illustration of these two worlds and these two bases, bases for, for hope at the Metropolitan Art Museum, where they're, every Christmas time and Advent time, they, they set up the big Christmas tree, and they have there a, a manger set, the, a creche at the basis of it, and it's, it's very nice, and very, of course, you'd think that nothing but the best there. And it's the typical stuff. It's Mary and the baby and Joseph and the manger and the wise men and the, the shepherds and the sheep and the camels and all. And, all. and it's, it's typical, very nice, but, but typical. But the interesting thing is that rather than Bethlehem surrounding the scene, it's Rome. It's Rome in all its former glory. It's the pillars, the columns, the Colosseum. It's, it's Rome's power. It's earthly power, but it's crumbling and falling apart. And that's a powerful illustration, friends, of the fact that the gospel, which we believe is the story of the new age coming against which the old age with its basis of power cannot stand. Let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah came in chapter 61 talking to people who thought everything was lost. Everything was gone. And he comes talking about hope. He comes talking about a blessed future when there will be justice for the poor, 
when there will be enough for everybody, when there will be gladness and joy and freedom. He says the same things. He, he, but he says this to people who are, like we sang in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that mourn in lonely exile. That's where they were. They were a broken, lost people. All of their hopes were dashed. God had promised Father Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to be with you and your children. Your children are going to outnumber the stars, the sand on the shore. Well, that was obviously out the window. Here they were moaning and groaning in exile. They had failed God. They had been the unfaithful ones. But he seemed to have broken his promises. Their hope was lost. Their hope was dashed. And that is the people to whom Isaiah comes and says these audacious, these way, way, way out of over-the-top sort of lines. He says, uh, there's hope. There is a blessed future. Things are going to be wonderfully, beautifully different. He's, he's standing in an obviously conflicted space. The, the, they looked around and they saw whips and iron boots stomping on their faces. They saw nothing on no good basis on which to build their hope. If they had had great satisfaction in David's military power and Solomon's wealth and all his glory in the magnificent temple, and, and they had that, had, they had said, oh yeah, boy, we, here, here we are, we're at the top of the heap now. We, we are enjoying power, political power. That was all dashed. That was all gone now. But Isaiah comes, and a few chapters earlier, he comes in chapter 40, a much-loved passage, too. He says, comfort. Comfort my people. I know the way it looks, and it looks really, really bad. I know how it looks, but you are forgetting the basis of your hope. And that is God. And he, he, in this passage, in chapter 61, he leaves the comfort, the sort of there, there, everything's going to be okay, of, of Isaiah 40. He leaves it far behind and jacks it way up to something outrageous and, and even audacious and, and talks about the, the, your enemies, your, the aliens, the foreigners, the people who are now your oppressors, are going to be the ones tending your sheep. You are going to be blessed among all the nations, and all of the nations will look to you as my blessed people. It's an audacious, outrageous thing to talk about the hope of the coming kingdom because it's in defiance of the way things look. It's in defiance of the storm. It's not a tame word or a domesticated... It's not safe speech. That's why Jesus got in such trouble for it. They were under the boot heel of Rome then. But it's, 
It proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. It proclaims that now is the season of God's blessing. The day of vengeance for our God. And in the face of all the facts, the prophet stands and looks out on a situation of of loss and despair and sings an incredibly more positive word. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the the display of his splendor. It's, It's a bold thing to prophesy such things. Think of how much more difficult it is to prophesy hope and joy and delight and fulfillment than to prophesy doom and gloom. Anyone can come along, truly, and confidently predict a future of war and calamity and terrorism, Um, loss, apostasy, loss of faith. I can confidently predict to you that in the near future, we will see acts of terrorism that will horrify us. I can confidently predict to you that in the not-too-distant future, the plates of the earth will shift and the ground will shake and the calamity and the dread will befall millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people, as it has been before. I can confidently predict that sometime soon the phone will ring and you will maybe listen for a moment, and your first impulse will be to look for a place to sit. And you might drop the phone. And people who know you well might look, be able to look into your eyes and know that nothing can ever be the same again. I, that, it, that, that is predictable, as sure as anyone of us is sitting here. But... I have not much security at all in predicting that a cure for the common cold is just around the corner. Or for cancer. I don't dare tell you that based on the the scriptures, based on my intuition, based on the newspapers, that we will enjoy peace and prosperity in the next year or the next decade, or until the Lord comes. I don't dare to... We are so accustomed to the dark and the gloomy look of the future. George Orwell's book, 1984, he he says, if you want to know... If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stomping on the human face forever. But Isaiah says something amazingly, radically different. He says, no, no, the future is astonishingly beautiful. It's full, absolutely full of great things. My people will be called oaks of righteousness. They will rebuild, they will restore, they will renew the places that have been ruined. Instead of shame, glory. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice. 
It's hard to, hard to put and believe such predictions in this kind of world, especially our kind of world. And we have a hard time believing it, and probably most of us say, well, yeah, that's all for, well, Beulah land. That's all for the great beyond uh, after Jesus returns a second time, and when we all get to heaven, then everything will be nice. But for now, we've got to slug along the best we can in, in this dog-eat-dog -dog world. That, that's what we basically shove it off into the distant, distant future with. We have a hard time believing this. And most don't. You get laughed at when you start talking this kind of talk. Some good things happen, of course. We discover penicillin. We, um, the uh, carnage of war is, in one sense, less horrifying than it used to be. They don't the, the number of lynchings in North America is way, way down. That, that's progress. That's a good thing. There, there's, we, we see some progress. We do. But it's precious little, and we need to be, con we oftentimes get uh, cynical about that. 400 years after Isaiah said this, somebody else said those words, and that was Jesus. And he quoted this passage in his sermon. And he almost got killed for it. I like to think of the fact, maybe it happened this way, Jesus takes his seat in the synagogue in Nazareth. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls the scroll to this passage, to the 61st chapter, and he reads it and rolls up the scroll, and there's a moment of quiet, and then he raises his eyes and says, today, this is fulfilled in your presence. How could that be? The lame walking, the blind seeing, restoration, health, hope, how could that be? He as much as says as this is fulfilled in this real world, not the one for Beulah Land for later on, in this world, he says, today this is fulfilled in me. Why, why is it, do you think, that we have such a hard time believing that? Believing that Jesus really did come and change the real world the world of poverty and the world of injustice and the world of, 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 of not enough for, for the vast number of the world's people. How, how is it in that kind of world, that was the kind of world Jesus preached in too, how is it that we almost refuse to believe it? C.S. Lewis said it's, it's like it's... We're afraid to change as much as this says it's, it's going to make us change. We sometimes disbelieve, C.S. Lewis said, the word of the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord. It's because we really don't want all that much of a change. We like things pretty much just as they are. And I, I suspect with you and with me, uh, radical changes are something that we're comfortable with or looking for. Lewis says, 
uh, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. But, and consider this, if we consider the unblushing promise of, a re of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the scriptures, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are, he says, far too easily pleased. Amen, amen. How much more, think about this, Christ came and said, today this is fulfilled in your presence. And they didn't like it. We probably aren't all that happy with the notion of uh, radical change either. Audacious change. But that's what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming an audacious change. Something really, really big has happened, has occurred. The triumphant Christ who came as a baby in a tiny little place, obscure, the most unpretentious of births, and in the lap of power that the world had never seen or known before. He came and came, though, holding the keys to the things that we fear the most, death and sin and hell. How about us, us in the church? Are we willing to hear this gospel again? Are we willing to recognize the audacious character of what Jesus came and what Isaiah before him came saying to the people? Hear again these words. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called mighty oaks, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. That's pretty wonderful, friends, and it's, it's also scary because we're called to be the church of Jesus Christ, his felt presence in the world. Let's pray, and then we'll sing um, a word about this song. If, if you're a Trinity graduate or a Dort graduate, you know some of the authors there. Calvin Seergelt penned the text, and Dale Grotenheis uh, did the harmony. This, this is a
This is a wonderful Advent song, and it's this pleading. We, we want to see more. We, we need more. Come back and save your folks. And if you have your bulletin there, um, look at stanza three. This is really, really quite wonderful. Oh, Spirit, give dumbfounding birth, carpet with green, a whole new earth. And then this line, redeem the rainbows in the sky. Now, if you think that if there's ever anything that doesn't need redemption, it's rainbows. I mean, what, what more beautiful thing is this thing after the storm? What this is saying is that the return of Christ is going to touch everything, even rainbows. Uh, it, maybe we'll understand later how just rainbows can be improved on. Right now, I think they're pretty wonderful. But uh, this is a song that, that calls on Christ to come and help us, and to help us believe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its audacious character. We thank you that for the, for the squirm factor. We thank you for the fact that you don't let us simply get away from it easily by sweeping it off to a distant day which we don't have to worry about. We thank you for the fact that you come and stand in our midst and say today, this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. And we thank you that there are ways, many, many ways, in which the poor can receive the help of the gospel. There are many, many ways in which we see health and beauty and crowns of gladness come. And we pray, Lord, for eyes to see more and more and for hearts willing to do more and more for you, you and your kingdom. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. O Christ, come back to save your folks. We'll stand and sing all five verses. Mm -hmm. 